Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I'm hitting you with a solo episode. And in this episode, I want to talk about something that's been very prevalent for me in since the birth of my son, and that I've talked about it a bit on social media, but what I called it was Operation Reverse Dad Bod. So I wanted to give you more specifics into what I've been doing and how I've accessed a new level of discernment in hopes that perhaps if you're someone who's maybe struggled with your body or you know changing how you eat or it could be accomplishing anything because i think about what is the difference between someone who says that they want something and actually moves towards and achieves it versus someone who says that they want something and never does and granted we can all end up in that latter category i've certainly been there and i wondered why i oscillated between you know, losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, always seemingly battling, you know, five to 20 pounds. And I thought, man, if I can maintain my weight at 15 pounds above my desire, why can't I just maintain it at where I want to be, which would be a healthy desired weight? So, so I want to share with you the origin story, something that I've never shared about why I've had the relationship that I've had with my body. I've been, you know, fairly, not obsessed, but fairly intentional about fitness my whole life. But I fall off of it sometimes and then come back. And I wonder why is it that I haven't maintained uh, rituals throughout? So when I was in grade five, grade six, I started to put on weight. And 
I don't really blame anything specifically for this in that I had access to sugar. I had an allowance. I would go to a 7-Eleven that was, you know, a short bike ride from our house and I would buy things like what we called five cent candies, but they're like gummy candies that are five cents each. And I would just load a bag with a dollar's worth, you know, and meanwhile, I'm getting pummeled with high fructose corn syrup. And you think of all the inflammatory things those are doing to my body. I'm drinking a lot of chocolate milk. I'm really consuming a lot of sugar. Marketing at the time, I remember was saying like, oh, if you're an athlete or you want to be higher performance, milk does a body good. I'm not sure if you remember that marketing. That's what was something that happened in Canada. It's good for your bones. It's right. It's all marketing that we receive from the dairy industry. So I don't really blame any specific circumstances. But what I found was that I would soothe a lot of my feelings with sugar. I would eat candy. And at the same time, grade five, grade six, grade seven, grade eight, those are the times when children start to move into this teenage phase and social hierarchies start to be created. So now male performance in terms of sports and things like that actually start to create a social hierarchy. And also for girls, how their body looks begins to be judged and creates a social hierarchy. And so you, ha you start to get like the cool group and the neutral group and the nerds and the, you know, whatever it might be. And I noticed that this social hierarchy was being formed and I was not moving <laughs> up the social hierarchy. And friends that I'd had throughout my childhood now were above me and not necessarily still interacting with me at the same level, which no judgment of any of this, but for someone who is that age at that time, that was very painful. And I, I didn't really have the language or the venue to be able to express that. Maybe I had shame about it. So I didn't come forth and tell my parents what I was suffering with, what I was experiencing. And I really turned towards eating more sugar. I remember being at a grade seven or grade eight dance and you know, you're like, am I going to dance with someone? Is this going to happen? And you're nervous and all the things that come with <laughs> that dance beginning, no pun intended. And I drank something like six Cokes. They were a dollar a piece. And I remember I drank so many pops really to deal with the angst and that I wasn't feeling chosen or desired. What that led me to do, though, is I remember sitting at a friend's birthday party in the somewhere around grade eight. And it was someone, there was someone sitting at the table with me who I knew from previously being in Cubs with, which is like Boy Scouts. It's the early part of it. And I remember sitting at the table and the guy said to me, oh, wow, Mark, you've really become quite a porker. And I, I can visually remember exactly where I was. I can remember exactly what I was looking at. I can remember exactly how that felt because my stomach sank and there was the beginning of really not loving how I was presenting. I knew that I had put on weight. There was a self-recognition of that. But that being called that, I just felt the, the social shaming and the consequence of a body looking different. And that summer of grade eight and grade nine, I went on what I would, it wasn't really a diet. It was very much food restriction. I started mountain biking a lot and I lost a lot of weight. I wouldn't say I lost it in a healthy way. I would, I remember my grandma used to have this product called Slim Fast and it was like a powder that you put into water. And when you drank it, it expanded in your stomach and the thought was it made you feel full. 
And so I remember sneaking SlimFast. It was wild to even share or think about. I can't believe I remember that. But that's what I was going through. And I lost all this weight. And I remember showing up to the first day of school and people being like, holy crap, what happened to Mark? And I started to get more attention. But what was going on internally for me was that I felt like I felt angry because I was still the same person. And it was hard for me to sit with that. I was now moving up the social hierarchy and seen as attractive to some people. But all of a sudden, I felt rejected and angry that that's what they now saw and desired. Which, look, there are evolutionary reasons that we desire healthy, fit bodies. There's nothing minimizing that. But the experience of someone on the other side, of course, is challenging. Because we recognize that society values that external versus internal. And we want to dramatically change that system. We want to make it so, oh, well, fitness, bodies that aren't in shape should not be shamed. Of course, they shouldn't be shamed. But we also should speak the truth that a healthy, fit body is actually an important outcome to desire. It's just, are we desiring it from, I want to make everyone happy and make sure I fit in, or am I doing it from a motivation that is more internal and real, that I want to create health. I want to create a healthy sense of self. I want to have behaviors that align with the values that I want to embody. And this is obviously a sticky subject because as soon as we start to have conversations about the importance of fitness, the importance of nutrition, there's a thought that it can be fat shaming. And I do think that there's a natural experience of healthy shame when we recognize that there's something we want to change within ourselves that we might not necessarily uh, desire to keep. And so this idea that we're supposed to love every aspect of ourselves, I agree with that, that if the if we can accept where we are now, great, then we're free. And we can actually access from a, a place of love that we accept ourselves, but also from a place of love that we desire transformation. Now, what seemingly I found in the repeated cycles was the repeated wounding. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'll use food to soothe the I'm not enoughness. Oh, I put back on weight. Okay, I'm going to do more exercise. I'm going to be more restrictive with food. And then I didn't know, it was like alcohol when I quit drinking. You know, it's like I I didn't know how to have a healthy relationship to alcohol. I would binge drink. I couldn't just have one. I liked having lots of them. I was good at it. I was more fun. All those types of thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that come with that. But I didn't know how to orient to alcohol being in my presence without wanting more of them. And just like when we start to relate with to food from a different place, we can interact with it. And instead of it feeling restrictive, I can't have this. What I noticed really helped for me, which I learned from Ben Azadi, is I choose to not have this. I actually choose to not have this. I could have it, but I'm choosing to not have it because of the priorities that I hold for myself and my health. So when I look at the origin of my relationship to sugar, my relationship to my body, my relationship to social structures based on my body, I had to sit with the grief of all that with the reality of all that, all the feelings I hadn't felt when I was younger. Now, what's interesting is that with Jasper, with having a son, 
I thought to myself, well, the current narrative about a father having a child is that a father gets dad bod. Now, there are some physiological reasons for this. One, when a when a man is around a woman who is pregnant, he is exposed to more pheromones and estrogen, and that in turn causes the testosterone to drop and the estrogen to increase. This is also shown in studies that look at males co-sleeping with the baby and the mother, that estrogen goes up and testosterone goes down. Again, these are posited to be because it raises attunement to the needs of the child and also, uh, like in the co-sleeping, awareness, nurturing, all these types of things, the delicious things that come with having your estrogen increased. So the drop in testosterone, though, is important when we start to put on weight, right? And especially around the midsection. So there's a physiological reason. And I'm like, if we accept that things have to be the way that we're told they are, what happens if we just shift that shit right on its head? Like, what happens if I have a child and then I actually use the love I have for my son to make sure that I maintain the best possible health so I can be present for him, so I have mobility, so I can reach down, I can roll, I can do all these things with him? I recently watched the movie Old Dads on Netflix, which is freaking great. Bill Burr is hilarious. And in it, I was laughing because I was thinking he's... 51 in the movie, his son's four. He had his first kid, I believe he said at 47. And I'm 44. I had my first son at 40, you know, my first child now at 44. And I thought, well, when my son's four, I'm going to be 48. I'm going to be the old dad hanging around with young dads. But the idea that age means a certain vitality or a certain physical experience is, it's not true. There is a meme that went viral that really demonstrates this. There's a woman who's 78 who looks kind of like your traditional, what you would maybe think of as a traditional grandma perm, you know, whatever, not in great shape. And then there's a 78-year-old woman who's like fit, very fit, very vital. And I thought, wow, that's two totally different versions of 78. Just like we can take something that we have believed is just how life goes or how the story goes and completely shift it on its head. So I thought, how do I access? Because I know when I changed my life and really got into integrity with how I was showing up to the world and how I was showing up to relationship, it was because I knew that if I was going to write something about what I thought was best in relationship or how to be in integrity, I sure as hell better be it. And I knew that when I first hit publish, all my old stuff that I knew I couldn't do anymore, they were, they were, there was conscious awareness around the dysfunction, around the lack of healthy decision-making. I knew that when I hit publish, I couldn't do those things anymore. And so there had to be, there was a delineation between the before, create the love, and the after, the BC, the AC. And, and that was actually just the birth of writing articles the first time I ever started writing about relationships, posting on Facebook. I just knew that I needed to, to really embody what I was saying. And so if there's something in your life that really matters to you, that, that is so important to you, that you're willing to stop your bullshit that you're aware of, that it is your bullshit. Like you're consciously aware that you're doing things that are not healthy for you, that you have a substance, a behavior that you've been thinking about exploring not doing anymore. That the universe has been like, hey, have you thought about? And then all of a sudden, memes come up about it. Podcasts come out about it. And all of a sudden, you're being hit with this messaging about some sort of expansive possibility for you that you keep delaying. 
Now, there's an interesting moment that we meet where the old shit we're done with. And, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert has a great quote where she says, there's no transformation that didn't begin with someone getting tired of their own shit. It's so true. But how do we create that? In a podcast that I recently did with Koshin Paley Ellison, who's a Zen monk and a marriage and family therapist, he talks about working with the dying. And I shared with him that when I worked in oncology, I was very interested in why all of a sudden when someone finds out, let's say they get a terminal diagnosis, that they change their life. Like, what's the difference between that person and you or I not having that diagnosis, but actually like changing our life? Like, how do we tap into that survival? Okay, now it's on. Now I don't have time. How do we do that? And he said, if you look at really the difference between those two circumstances, one person has just accepted the reality of death. And that's so fascinating, right? It's so simple because we all have a terminal diagnosis in some sense. Like, this isn't going to go forever. And, and all of us have a different expectation or idea of how long we have, and then we negotiate that time with what we can tolerate today. But if you can actually confront the idea that you have no day promised to you, you can actually access a new level of, of motivation and integrity. Because if I said to you, you've got a month, like clean your shit up if you want to, but you have a month. What legacy do you want to leave? Who do you want to be? What becomes important to you? And imagine if you could change everything today, like just decide today it's it. That's the delineation. If you could change it today, what is possible for you in a month? Like what's possible for the life you could create? How much could you extend it? Because I look at my son and I'm, that's what I've accessed now is this level of, of if I have to choose between consuming a dessert that's sugary, which you can have whatever you want. This is my own decision. But it's like if I have the choice between having that or having something that's not sugary, that's maybe more nutritional, that, that can satisfy my desire for a dessert, that in choosing the healthier option, I'm actually choosing life. I'm choosing that I want to do whatever I can to be around as long as I possibly can to love my son, to guide him. And through those behaviors that are in alignment with the desired outcome I want to create, I'm teaching my son integrity and alignment. Not only my son, but everybody I'm in relationship with now gets to witness me in full integrity with my commitments. And, you know, one of the most powerful ways you can create the, the pressure to change, too, is to make your commitments public. I've shared that I desire to use the energy of having a son for transformation. Now, what I've discovered in this is that there's a part of me that goes, why didn't I do this earlier? Like, why didn't I change earlier? Why did I wait till, you know, I had uh, elevated uh, markers in my blood test to really get that motivation, to really find. So there's that desire that I want. Now that I have the awareness of this level of discernment, I look back on my life where I had a lower level of discernment and commitment to this outcome. And I feel a sense of, I feel a sense of grief about that. I feel a sense of shame about that because there's, there's new awareness that when you look in hindsight, you look through the lens of the new awareness. So I'm, I'm mindful of that. And what brings me back is it's the perfect time. 
It's the perfect time. I can do this now. I can do this now. And what's possible for my life now that I've accessed this new level of discernment and discipline? Like, I didn't know I could have this level of discipline. And if I can access it through the motivation in this one area, how will it leak into every area of my life? It's already done that. You know, I'm getting up earlier. um, I'm going to bed earlier. There's so many habits that are coming in, the value of time. I I joke that the before I had a son, I had a lot of spare time apparently I didn't know about because I wasn't using it efficiently. But now that I have a kid, which all of you who have kids, you for sure know way ahead than and way better than I did, that like time is very precious, not just the precious time of their own changes that you see happening. And, you know, a week to a seven month old is so much change. You could have a new tooth. There's like new behaviors. It could be, you know, new words. But that value of the precious moment just becomes so clear. And I didn't realize how much time I was wasting, how much time I was wasting, you know, getting lost in things on social media or, you know, when you go to open something to do it, you know, like go check something on the internet and all of a sudden you end up wanting to buy a new car or looking at houses that are not in your market at this current moment. Like we don't prioritize things and we really have to be mindful that technology itself is meant to do that to you. And so we have to build the the skill set and the level of discernment and discipline to be able to say, not now, like this is not actually important right now. And if we can structure our day from that, that the most important things are already done in the morning. Um, I interviewed uh, Hal Elrod, who created the Miracle Morning, and he looked at what do the most successful people do in the morning. And they did like one to five things, I think he said. And instead, he was like, what happens if I do all five things? So the whole morning has developed. You could do it in 15 minutes and you have already crushed all the habits that the most successful people do one to three of. That's pretty wild. So you look what's available to us when we take this level of responsibility for our lives, which I'm not on a pulpit being like, you got to take responsibility for your life and I now am a master of all of this. I'm like, no, nah, I'm learning as I go. But I'm also like, shit, why do some people access that and other people not? And my first thought and what I believe is that they've accepted the finite time that we have on this planet. That's the first one is they've just accepted death. They've accepted it and they've recognized it. And now they live their life through the lens of acceptance of that. The second one is that finding that motivator that lives deep in your core, your purpose, your mission, your integrity, what legacy you want to leave. A really powerful exercise that Stephen Covey has in uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is that you write a eulogy, your eulogy. You write it out like, what would you want someone to say about you? And then you live that life. What a beautiful guiding principle, right? Like what a beautiful guiding document that says this is like the living eulogy. This is what I'm actually creating as I go. So at any moment, if you did happen to pass, that you would be leaving that already. You wouldn't be striving to it. It would be your way of being. So I say all of this because the wounds that I experienced with my relationship to food and body, and I could blame the guy at the picnic table I was sitting at. I could blame sugar. I could blame 
social hierarchies of evolution and that society values fit bodies over big bodies and all that kind of stuff. I could blame all those things and I would be valid, right? Like I, I could, I could say that and other people would be like, yeah, I can't believe they put high fructose corn syrup in that. I can't believe that, you know, people are so vain or shallow. Or I could be like, what do I want to create independent of all those things? Evolutionary behaviors exist. It's just normal. You know, we think that people have become superficial. We've always been superficial. It's just that social media and apps like, you know, swiping apps, just they just exemplify it. They just exaggerate it. But we can choose to be part of the game and be in it and not know about it, or we can enter in and out of it, right? That saying about Christ is to be in the world, but not of the world. As Alan Watts talks about, like to be in the system, but not be the system. And so how can we actually look at how the world works, see what we want to agree with? When you're operating with this level of awareness and consciousness, you're not lost in blaming the world for the world being the way it is or the psychology being the way it is. Because if you're blaming it, then you can't change it. So this is this level of discipline and individuation that says, let the world be the way it is. Let me be the way I am. And then let me interact with the world. So you're dancing in and out of it. You're playing the game. And if there's something that you've been waiting to change, if there's something that you've been waiting to give birth to, if there is a purpose, a mission, just you being a fully embodied version of yourself is the completion of a mission. I mean, that's so inspiring. When we are around people like that, we change. Because not only do their behaviors become contagious, the energy at which they're operating, which some might call frequency, is it's radiant. You can feel it. You know when you're in a room and someone enters a room and the room changes? But sometimes it changes from a sense of sphere, but other times it changes from a sense of expansion and possibility. And we can be that expansion and possibility for every room we enter, for every relationship we're in, for every community we're part of, for every conversation we have. And that is the legacy that I believe we should all strive to leave. And it is through the experiences we have in our lives or suffering, the wounds we have. Gosh, there's an endless collection, isn't there, if we want to collect them? And we do collect them unconsciously anyways. It's like, what do we do with them? And this is the invitation to decide what we do with it. So with lots of love and with hope and possibility, uh, I hope that through my share, you access a different version of yourself and a different level of discipline and discernment. And I can't wait to hear what you've changed just by saying today is the day that everything changed. 